join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today um, with humbled hearts, knowing that uh, for those, are, those of us who are in Christ, you, you have brought us to this place and you will hold us firm. You will hold us fast in the promises of your Son. We pray that as we study in your word, as we learn, that we be reminded of the truths which we first believed for Christ and his sacrifice for sins in our place, um, in the joy um, when understanding that, that you placed in our hearts and you brought us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your, of your beloved son. Make that joy renewed in our hearts this morning. Give us minds that cast aside distraction and allow us to focus on your word for the edification of our spirits and souls and for the glory of Christ in his name. Amen. Queen Elizabeth II is the second longest, or is the is the longest reigning monarch in British history. She reigned over seventy years. She ex- exceeded. She took the throne at the age of twenty-five, and she died just about a year and a half ago um, in September of twenty twenty-two. And of course, for for any royalty, they would they would have a funeral, but her funeral was um, was incredible, um, and it was a tremendous undertaking. Called Operation London Bridge, the British newspaper The Guardian reported that the first plans of her funeral started to be put together in 1952. So if you're keeping track, she was 25 and or she, they started to be put together in the 60s. If she was 25 in 1952, she was in her 30s when they were already planning for her to move on. Um, and it had been refined even more over the, la- the most recent 20 years. The order of service that was just given to those in attendance of this funeral was, was 22 pages long of all of the details from start to finish of this event. But the, the queen is trumped by a much greater monarch, a more majestic ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is not remembered just once as the queen is remembered, but he is remembered weekly across the world by those who follow him for the last 2,000 years. And as the royal funeral was one of great order, so should the worship and the remembrance of the ordinances that our Lord has given us. Unfortunately, when the church at Corinth gathered for communion to celebrate the Lord's table, it, it wasn't that. It wasn't a solemn suffer, supper, but instead it, it was a dog's breakfast. It was a mess. It was completely without focus and order on why they were there. So as we continue studying in 1 Corinthians today, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17, and we'll study through the end of the chapter. If you're taking notes, um, Paul is going to confront the church and provide direction in this instance, and our title of our lesson is Order at the Lord's Table. Order at the Lord's Table. And our first point of discovery this morning, um, I've titled it Disorder at the Dinner Table. And that will be from verses 17 to 22. You see, disorder is sadly a defining characteristic of the church at Corinth. Um, the first four chapters of this letter were really focused on their disorder and lack of unity. Um, and Paul's correction and condemnation of the church, before he started to correct them, he had to take care of this fundamental problem that was really at the root of every 
issue, every spot of sin, every dysfunction in the church. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 10, verse 10, Paul said, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul started this letter with an exhortation to be unified, to get rid of the divisions. And he spent a lot of time addressing that because it, we can't look at, at, at problems if we're not unified in what a solution could be, if we're not even unified in what the authority was. You'll remember they were divided by different teachers. Some said, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, and I'm of Christ. They were divided by different attitudes. Arrogant, as though Paul is not going to show up, as though he's not going to address these things. Arrogant, as if they're better than others. They were divided by spiritual maturity. There were those who, who, were, who were immature in Christ and were looked down upon by the church. And there were those who thought that they were far more advanced, but weren't. They were divided by superficial categories like who has the world's goods and who is poor. We saw that this toxic division is tearing apart the church and here it comes back. And it comes back at one of the most important places in the life of the church. It comes back when they're celebrating the Lord's table, when they should be remembering Christ's sacrifice for sins. They're divided and creating a mess. You see, Scripture teaches us that when believers come together, it's typically good. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 says, Two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But that, sadly, isn't true in Corinth. The brother who falls down is trampled over. He's excluded and pushed aside. And the powerful and the rich stand up in their place. When the church comes together, relationships, relationships get worse, not better. And we see that this disorder is first characterized in verse 17 with a lack of unity. A lack of unity, Paul says in verse 7, starting in verse 17, But in giving this instruction... I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. You see, the church is the only institution our Lord Jesus Christ established on this earth. In Revelation 21, it is described as a glorious temple that God dwells within. In Ephesians 5, the church is described as a body that the Lord Jesus nourishes, that he cares for. And in a temple and in a body, there is unity. A temple is one building. A body is one entity with members that do different things, but they are united in a function. So it should be a defining trait of the church of God, because we serve a God who is perfectly united. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. In, Jesus, in John chapter 10, verse 31, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. 
In Luke 10, 16, Jesus says, The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects me, rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And giving those instructions to the apostle, he says, Listen, if they reject you, they're rejecting me. And they're ultimately rejecting God the Father because he and I are one. We are united. God is a God of unity. There are incredible examples of unity in the scripture. Um, Ezra 3.1, we recently studied Ezra. You'll, you'll remember that uh, the people in Ezra 3 were described as coming together in Jerusalem as one man. So instead of a mass of people, it's like they came together and they're all the same. They were all united. There was one purpose that they were all there for. There was no division. I think one of the best examples of unity in scripture is in Acts. Turn with me to Acts 2. I think of unity in the church. There's no better place to go to than the beginning of the church, just after Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, Paul, or Peter, forgive me, stands up and preaches a sermon. In the context that, that there was a small group of believers, Peter preaches a sermon. He calls out the sin of the Jewish people hearing, and they repent. He calls out their sin for rebellion and murder. And they are called to repent. These people that were at odds, that they had just killed the leader of what they seen as Peter's movement. And then we read this in chapter 2, verse 41 of Acts 2. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone had need. You see, this picture in Acts is, 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 a, is a polar opposite. It's the other side of the coin from what's happening in Corinth. In Corinth, there was disunity, there was dissension, there was pride and arrogance. In the church of Jerusalem, these people who had just murdered the Lord Jesus Christ and were brought into the church, they, they, they came together as just in Ezra as one man. They said, what can we do? How can we help? And they sold, they sold possessions so that everyone had what they needed. You see, they are not united in Corinth. They're divided. There's no balance. There's belligerence. And there is no harmony. There is even hatred. See, Paul says that there's divisions among you. You can turn back to 1 Corinthians 11 now. Paul, Paul calls them out. He says, there are divisions among you. And the condition of being divided is because they have conflicting aims or conflicting objectives. The same word can be referred to splitting or tearing. Um, like in, in Mark 2.21, Jesus says, No one sews a patch on an unshrunk cloth or an old garment because otherwise the patch pulls away. It tears. It gets divided. Um, you sew it together and they tear apart and they're two again. No one would do that. Well, just like a torn shirt is totally worthless to most of you. I don't think that's back in quite yet. Um, but for me, a torn shirt is worthless. Um, uh, a torn and division body, when the body of Christ is torn, it, it can't function. 
And these divisions or factions are, are what some people today, they'll use the word cliques. Um, and there's a difference with what Paul's focus is than how we use the term because Justin often says when people come to the youth group and say there's cliques, he says, well, those are just groups of friends. And I think that's right um, because it could just be a group of friends. Um, and it's common today for people to walk into a new church, not just a youth group, but a new church is their first time in there and there's people talking in a circle and they just have this idea that everyone's going to break apart and be like, oh, you're, I see that you're new. Like, welcome. Become our best friend immediately and let us like serve you. That's just, that's not how it works, right? We have close friends and we have people that we, that we, that we see occasionally and that, that we're close with, but they're not in our close circle of friends. Jesus had 12 people who were much closer to him than the rest of the world and he was kind to all. You see, it takes work to make friends and build unity. And if that's any of the above, it's not really a click because when Paul uses this term factions, and we would use the word click, the defining trait is that they're not readily allowing others to join. They're not readily allowing others to join. And that's a problem because if we have our group here and we're all in our happy huddle and we get someone new coming to countryside, we're like, you know what? I mean, hang around for six months and let's see. And then maybe... Maybe we'll let you, you know, sit by us or we'll invite you to something. And that's not how, that, I know that's for, for the vast majority of you, that's not how you act. I mean, we have a whole ministry team that someone comes in when we include people and, and we want to because we're the body of Christ. But that wasn't happening in Corinth. Paul sees a bright spot, though, in their divisions. You may, um, at the end of this um, first um, set of verses, he says, For there must also be factions among you. That's an interesting thing to say. Paul is attacking their lack of unity, but then he's like, but there must be a lack of unity among you. Why? So that those who are approved may become evident among you. You see, Paul sees a bright spot and a benefit of this lack of unity because he says, at least we can see who the true Christians are. At least we can see who the people who love the Lord are in this group and those who are just here to abuse the body and get what they want out of it. See, factions in Corinth look like they were being made along superficial lines, but Paul says they're actually not superficial. It's not rich or poor. It's a spiritual line. They're demonstrating the conditions of their hearts. You see, when we act in that manner, we are showing others the state of our heart. And that was happening in this church. These people who were making dissensions and divisions were demonstrating a fruit that wasn't the fruit of the spirit, but a fruit of the age. They weren't being peaceful. They weren't building unity. They weren't being gentle or kind or considerate. They weren't exhibiting any self-control. And Paul says, well, at least we can see who those people are and that they may not be really of us. So first, Paul confronts their lack of unity. Next, he takes on their lack of generosity. Next, he takes on their lack of generosity. He says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. You see, just in, as in Acts, it was common for believers to gather together for these weekly feasts, um, and then at the end of the feast, so there was like a big meal. It's not like in, um, in, in the early church, 
the Lord's, when they celebrated communion, it was like a whole spread full of food. What they did was they would have a feast together as a body of Christ. And if you're up from Minnesota, like that happens a lot up north. Like Lutheran churches back where I'm from, they would have like a, they would have a potluck and everyone would have their own casserole. And it would, and then some people would have a hot dish and the difference, there's a difference. Hot dishes have meat, casseroles don't. Um, and you would eat them. Um, they'd be flavorless and bland and you'd compliment the other people on it, but you'd talk about them behind your back because you're from Minnesota, so you'd never say it to their face. Um, but you would talk about how not good it was. Um, and, and then you would eat it. But then at the end, they would celebrate communion. They would, they would celebrate the bread and, with the bread and wine. But instead of taking the sacred ordinance together, the wealthy factions in this church rushed in and didn't wait for other people. And this resulted in many having nothing. Well, others drank so much they were drunk on the communion wine, which was hard to do because the wine in ancient times had much less alcohol than it does today, so they'd have to drink a lot of it. So that just shows how belligerent they were and how careless they were in this, in this practice. But you'll recall in Acts 2.45 that we just read, the, the early church began selling all of their things to include everyone. This church, they, they neglected doing good. They didn't share. You know, 1 Timothy 6.18, probably say it seven or eight times a day to uh, my two kids, but Paul says to Timothy, instruct them to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And that was not happening in Corinth. They were not generous and ready to share. They were selfish in keeping it for themselves. He goes deeper though. It's not just selfishness. The demonstrate that when you, when you show selfish, selfishness, Paul wants the church at Corinth to understand that it is showing hatred. It is showing hatred. He asked them, do you, or do you despise the church of God? It sounds ex- extreme, but we have to go back and, and think, think of Christ and think of the fruits of the Spirit. And in Philippians 2, Paul says, do nothing from selfishness. And he's going to compare this to Christ. Philippians 2.6 says, Who, although he, that's Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus, God himself, seeing our struggle and pain and sin from heaven, didn't say, if they want my help, they're just going to have to come force me to do this. Like, I could do it, but I'm having a good time up here. It's perfect. It's easy. No, you see, Jesus instead willingly, he laid aside. He, he, Philippians 2 said he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. That means he did, it's, it's not something someone stole from him. He set it aside and came to serve and save us. Seeing the disorder in the church, Paul then turns to give four simple instructions for an ordered ordinance, to, to give order to this. And, his, um, and we're going to see this in verses 23 down to the end of the chapter, which ends in verse 34. In instruction number one, and, and before, actually before I go into this, the, Paul is going to describe how, he's going to describe the Lord's table. And well, what this is, it's, a, it's an instruction that all of us can write these points down these instructions and when we take the Lord's table this is how we should do it these four instructions he gives us are an easy way for us to 
consider his sacrifice to, to move through and, and use this ordinance as a time of reflection. And his first instruction to the Corinthians and to us is to consider Christ's sacrifice. This is a familiar passage, verses 23 to 25. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. See, this, this word remembrance is, is repeated. And that is the instruction here that we should consider Christ's sacrifice when we celebrate the Lord's table. And it's his first instruction because it's the root part of the problem. It's the cause of the problem. And it's the problem not just in this instance, but of all of the church's disorder among all of everything that Paul is addressing. They have forgot to consider Christ and his sacrifice for sin. They've neglected to consider it and what it meant to them and how it should impact how they live their lives. Which is the entire point of the Lord's table and communion. Because Jesus, when he took the Passover bread and wine, he gave them a radical new meaning that served as pictures of his painful death. So when he, Christ did it, he says, I want you to do this as often as you gather together in remembrance of me. Because this is that important. The question then is, what are we remembering? And of course, it is his death on the cross, but it is so much more. It is so much more than that because in the Lord's table, we're remembering that Jesus is God in the flesh. He existed forever, but condescended and came to earth to be like us in every way except without sin. He was perfect and holy. John chapter 1 says, all things came into being through Jesus Christ. This man who was born on earth, who has said, do this in remembrance of me, gave himself up as a sacrifice, he, he existed forever and he created everything. We also remember that man is part of that creation. And man was created unique in God's image. And he was given just one command, don't eat of the tree or you'll surely die. But Adam sinned and God had every right to cast both Adam and Eve into hell in that very moment. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. And you see, you and I are both sinners. And scripture says in Romans 23, all have sinned. Have you, have you considered that every time you sin, God has the right to cast you into hell in the very moment that you sin? He has every right to do it. But he doesn't. We remember this at the Lord's table. Instead, instead of sending us to hell the moment that we first sin, in eternity to pass, knowing that you would be in this helpless state, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, volunteers. He volunteers for a rescue mission. And it's not just any rescue mission. It's not like calling the fire department to save a cat from a tree that is of no sacrifice to them at all, just of, of an of a inconvenience, not what I should be using my time to do. No, Jesus leaves the throne room of heaven 
and comes to earth as one of his own that he created, he lives a perfect life, the life that all of us should live. He lives that life for 33 years. He dies on the cross, having lived a perfect life of no sin. He is punished as a rebel against Rome for rebels against the holy God. That is incredible. He is punished for rebellion for rebels. And God shows he demonstrated that he accepted that sacrifice by raising him from the, get, from the grave. He rose again with a free offer of redemption for all mankind. Repent, believe in the gospel, and you'll be saved. And the offer comes with a promise. This offer Christ gives us comes with a promise that the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. I will not cast him out. That is what we remember at the Lord's table. And if you have bent your knee to Christ and received that offer, then that is what we celebrate. And if you have not, the offer is still here to you today. If you're still a rebel, if Christ has not died for your rebellion, he still offers that salvation today. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. That is what we remember at the Lord's table. And that is why it is so important. Just like when our world mourns the death of a monarch who had lived for 70 years and who is a, a sinner who did bad things, but had they, we, they had this elevated position of who she was. They celebrated with sorrow and joy much more and, and, the, and in an ordered way, much more should the church at Corinth and we should celebrate Christ with the respect and solemnity that he deserves. That's our first instruction. Consider Christ's sacrifice. Second, the, our second instruction is consider Christ's return. This is found in verse 26. We don't just look to his first coming. We look ahead. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. See, at the Lord's table, we simply aren't looking back in gratitude. We're looking forward with eager hope and anticipation. Like Tom was teaching this morning, we are looking for Christ's second coming, for justice to reign on this earth, for evil to be defeated, and for righteousness to have a home. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will, will appear. He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. His second coming is as sure as his first. And that should be a sobering thought if you sit here today, especially if you're not in Christ. He came before it as a historical fact. Even, even secular historians who don't believe a word of the spiritual promises of the gospel, they will not dispute that there was a man, Jesus Christ, in Nazareth. It seems that he, he was killed by the Romans for rebellion. But they don't believe the real truths around that. They say, yes, this man came again, and you know what? Scripture says he's coming. Revelation 1-7, behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. So it will be. Amen. Christ is coming again. And at the Lord's table, we take this ordinance and we reflect on our sin and the reality that it caused Christ to come the first time, but we also do so looking forward to glorification, to 
consummation to making the world as we all feel it should be. We look towards that at the Lord's table. Paul's third instruction is to consider your heart. We consider Christ's sacrifice. We consider his return. And now we consider our hearts from verse 27 to 32. Paul Paul writes, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. You see, Paul approaches this command to examine ourselves like he's looking through facets of a diamond. There are are three different aspects Paul touches on as he goes through, but it seems like he's saying the same thing. First, he wants us to understand our conduct matters. Then he wants to understand that we must examine our conduct because it matters. And then third, that if we do that rightly, we're doing it because, so, we, so we will avoid judgment. So let's, let's look at this first, this first view Paul has, that our conduct matters. And that's found in verses 27 and 29. This is a sobering thought. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You see, there are consequences to not rightly taking of the Lord's table. And Paul wants this church to understand it because they, they, they were treating it like it was just another meal. Like it was just time to eat. But he wants them to know, like, listen, there are serious consequences for doing this. And if, the conse- if there is a consequence, then we need to ask ourselves, what is unworthy conduct? Because we, we see that uh, the consequences are to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, to be as if you were one of the ones that put a nail in his hands and killed him. That's the idea. Or if we do it in an unworthy manner, that we're actually eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. That's serious. I don't know if any of you want to bring judgment on yourselves intentionally, but that is what happens in this church here when they take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, and the same is true for us. So we have to ask, well, what's unworthy conduct? Because I don't want to do that. I don't want to be judged. And the word... Unworthy, it just means inappropriate or not suitable. So we need to then think of how could we demonstrate inappropriate or unsuitable traits or behaviors in our life. But first, what it doesn't mean to take up the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, what it doesn't mean is that you live a perfect life because all of us here are unworthy of what is being celebrated in the Lord's table. So what Paul is not saying is that, that you're unworthy unless you are perfect. So you need to be perfect to take the Lord's table. No, that's not what he's saying at all. But what it does mean is that we approach it seriously. That 
when we approach the Lord's table, we look within. That we look into our own hearts. Because when we sin, we have two options. We can put our feet down and say, I'm going to keep acting this way. It is, well, I want to live, so I will keep doing it. Or we can humble ourselves and know that those are sins for which Christ died. Those are sins that each one of them, God could have at that moment ended my life. But he didn't because he sent Christ to take my punishment. You see, eating the Lord's table in an unworthy manner would be like a father and son who are camping alongside a river and there are the water, the, the, the father tells the son to not go into the water because there are, there are crocodiles, it is dangerous, there, there, there is danger in the water. And then so the father, he says, I'm going to go take a nap. And the, the father is napping and the son, what does he do? Well, he goes into the water and the father is roused and woken and his son, there are crocodiles swarming him. He is, he's fallen into the water. And so the father goes into the water. He, he swims through, he drags the son out. And then the son wakes up moments later and he sees, he looks around, he's slightly cut and he looks next to him and his father is laying there bleeding from wounds from these animals. And then the son gets up and he walks back into the river and puts himself in trouble again. That, that wouldn't make any sense. No, if someone made that sacrifice for you to save you, you would not want to go make the same mistake again. You would, you would appreciate the sacrifice. You would live in light of that. So we must examine ourselves. How do we do that? How do we examine ourselves? Well, it just so happens that we spent two years in big church going through some helpful tools to do that. John 1, what is the theme of, sorry, what is the theme of 1 John? The tests of eternal life. So if we're going to examine ourselves, we have a tool in God's word. How brilliant is that? He's given us a tool. He's, Paul tells us, he commands, examine yourselves. God then gives us a whole book on the Bible designed to help us examine ourselves. And so we can do that. At the Lord's table, we can, we can look inward and say, do I believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel? Because the Lord's table is for his people. So if we don't pass that first test, if you say, you know what? I, I, I like going to church. I like people. I like to be, I like my friends. So it's, it's convenient for me to look like I believe those things, but I, I, I just don't really think I have put my hope and trust in Christ's salvation if we don't pass that test and this is for his people, then we are eating and drinking the judgment of God unto ourselves. The second test, do you obey Jesus Christ in his word? Again, it doesn't mean that we do that perfectly, but if as a pattern of life, there are, when we come to the Lord's table, if there are sins that you're sitting there knowing that when you leave, you're going to commit that sin again, whatever it is. If it is, if it is sins of how you interact with, how we interact with our parents or authorities in our life, and you know what, I'm just not, my parents said, tonight you can't go here, but I'm going. If it's sexual sin, if it is anger and hatred we're harboring in our hearts, if it's deceit, any sin, if we're sitting there and saying, I am going to leave this building intent on doing that again, that is we have failed that test. And we're eating and drinking the judgment of God onto ourselves because Christ died for those sins and we're saying that I don't value the sacrifice because I'm going to keep living that way.
And lastly, do you, the, the third test, do I love God and his people? We need to examine ourselves. Do I look forward to fellowship? And <clears throat> this one may seem a bit more controversial, but I, I truly believe that we should examine ourselves and be serious about this. Am, if I am a Christian taking the Lord's table, and one of the tests is, do I love God and his people? I need to ask myself, am I serving the body of Christ, using the spiritual giftedness God has given me? And if we're sitting at the Lord's table saying, I don't intend to serve this church, to get involved and use my gifts, I'm going to be for not for just a season, but my intent is to not get engaged, we are bringing a judgment on ourselves because that demonstrates that we don't care about the people around us, that we don't love the body of Christ. So in the same manner as a doctor examines a patient, even though no one wants, no one wants a cancer diagnosis, no one wants a serious, a serious diagnosis when they go into the doctor. Imagine if you walked in and you had symptoms, but you say, I, I know that I have this like lump here, like on my arm. Um, and when I cough, my eye hurts. But I don't really want you to look at that because I'm a little worried about what the results could be of the test. So I'd just rather not know. Nobody goes into the doctor like that, right? When they think they have a serious illness. So we need to examine ourselves in the same manner and not so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to consider my thought life because I know it's been a mess. So if I, if I think about it, I'm going to need to repent, but I want to keep doing it. That's, that's a double-minded approach. And it shows that we don't want to be like Christ because we're avoiding, we're avoiding the situation. You see, Warren Wearsby, a commentator, says this, No one ought to come to the table who is not a true believer, nor should a true believer come to the table if his heart is not right with God and his fellow Christians. That is a great summary of how we're to examine ourselves. We need to be right with God, and we need to be pursuing Christ-likeness and looking to put off sin in our lives when we become aware of it. And thirdly, the third facet of this diamond, if we do so, if we do this, we'll avoid judgment. We'll avoid judgment. Paul, Paul, Paul concludes this, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Listen, the reason why God is punishing these Corinthians by making them ill, disciplining them, and even having some of them die is so that they are not lost ultimately. So that they, they are shown the error of their ways or prevented from doing even worse sins that would demonstrate that they were not in Christ. So, Either we judge ourselves, pass the test, participate, and we're not judged, or we judge ourselves. We don't pass the test. We repent and do not participate, and we're not judged. Those are serious consequences. But we bring God's judgment into our lives if we ignore them. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. All they did was lie about a land sale that they had made. And they were not obligated to give all of the proceeds to the church, but they wanted the church to believe that that's what they were going to do. And God struck them down in a moment for each of them. God, Paul is saying that God meets out that same judgment to those who don't treat the Lord's table in an appropriate manner. And it should be an ex exhortation to all of us to consider that sacrifice. Well, 
Paul's instructions so far, we've had three. His instructions have been to consider Christ's sacrifice, to consider Christ's return, to consider our own hearts, and lastly, Paul wants us to consider others. He wants us to consider others, and that's found in the last two verses of this chapter, where he says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. So Paul has even more instructions, but he's not going to go on. He's taking care of what's most important, but he does want them to consider others. And we're not considering others and looking around as critical spiritual police. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, consider other people so you can find out their sins and tell them, hey, I don't think you should take communion because I saw how you treated your friend in the parking lot and that wasn't very kind. Um, So I think you should sit this one out. Um, So when the the tray comes, I'm just going to pass it over you. Don't be offended. I I think you should skip. No, he's saying, consider your own heart. And that will keep the body of Christ pure. If each of us look into ourselves, then we will protect the purity of Christ and keep judgment out of the body. This is why throughout church history, by the way, um, church discipline and the Lord's table have been tied together. Because there is an element where we are also looking towards the body of Christ and we want to protect it. We're not trying to be the spiritual enforcers and lose mindfulness of ourselves. But... Church discipline is practiced along with communion because if those individuals are, that are unrepentant, that are trampling underfoot the body and blood of Christ, aren't removed from the fellowship, then they will bring judgment on the fellowship and the church of Christ. But don't miss Paul's message. The Lord's table should not just simply a spiritual witch hunt, either internally or externally. It shouldn't be a spiritual witch hunt where every week you're going and you say, I'm not worthy, I've sinned. You know what? You have sinned and you're not worthy. But we serve a God who has saved us. It is a meal ultimately of thankfulness, of gratitude, of unity with the body that is done in eager anticipation of Christ's return. So how do we take all of this, these instructions, and put them into practice. Well, for the unbeliever, don't participate. If you're here and you know that you're not a member of the body of Christ, if that you are still in your sins, rebelling against Christ, I can't more strongly urge you to, when that plate comes to you, I think next Sunday, to Pass it along, because if you take of it, you are eating and drinking God's judgment on you. You are saying, I don't believe in my Savior's sacrifice, and God says, then you're still in your sins, and you will be judged. So don't participate. Don't just do it because you want to look like you fit in, because it's not worth it. If you want to fit in, join the body. Turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ. That is the only way to participate in the unity of the local church. But for the believer, uh, uh, just a few points of consideration. First, consider the seriousness of what we celebrate at the Lord's table. You know, often um, in in other churches, um, my in-laws go to a Presbyterian Church of America, or they used to, they don't right now, there's not one local. But when we would go and take communion, 
there would be, we, you would, we would walk up. Fortunately, it wasn't like no one drank out of the same cup. Um, probably used to do that. Gross. Um, but they would have a plate with the bread on it, and then there would be a tray with the cups. And when you took the bread, for every person, one of the elders would say, this is Christ's body broken for you. And then when you picked up a cup of the juice, they would say, this is Christ's blood shed for you. That is what communion is a picture of. So understand that that is the seriousness of what is happening. Those elements are a picture of those realities. So as that tray comes, just picture those words in your mind. When you take that little square of bread, that is is a picture of Christ's body broken for you, believer. It is serious. Consider others in the body. How can you love people well? By including them. It doesn't mean that everyone's our best friend, but we want to build unity and we shouldn't be looking down on others. Encourage each other in Christ-likeness. Praise the positive. Be bold enough to address areas of sin in the lives of our friends. And then thirdly, and most importantly, because this is for us, pursue Christ-likeness ourselves so that we come together. We honor the Christ with an ordered participation in this ordinance which he gave us to remember him and to remember his coming. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled by the gospel that we have underseen communion. The Lord's table is is a remembrance of the gospel. It is a ceremony of the gospel, of Christ's sacrifice for sin, of his resurrection from the dead, and the salvation that comes by faith in that reality. Lord, I pray for those who aren't in Christ, that they would see the reality of what that is, of what we look back on, and it would cause them to see their mountainous debt of sin and the Savior who willingly bore that on the tree for them. And for those in Christ, that they would come together in unity, we would examine ourselves, that we would be a pure and holy body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory and his alone. Amen.